pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. 水煮肉片. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David Martins and I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And my guest today is a writer, chef, podcast host and advocate for maternal well-being. Originally from Russia, but has been living in the U.K. since the late 90s. In 2014, she created Kinovuno Supper Club, which rapidly gained recognition as one of the most original projects in London food scene. In 2019, she released a cookbook, Salt and Time, recipes from a Russian kitchen. Her recipes are featured on The Guardian, Olive Magazine, The Independent, and House and Garden. Her podcast is called Mother Foods. Alisa Timoshkina, I'm going to try this. Privet, Karedila. That's very good. Privet. Thank you. It was a whole morning practicing for this. Uh, <laughs> two important questions before we start. Have you ever been to Portugal? I have actually, yes. Now you got to say how amazing it is. That's the follow-up. <laughs> Alyssa, help well, me out here. I was very young. Okay. I think I must have been nine or something. And I don't think my culinary knowledge was up to scratch. <laughs> so all I wanted was like cheese toasties and coke <laughs> okay. coca-cola i mean but i mean it was lovely yeah we really enjoyed our holiday do you know any portuguese words um yeah a few in in russia brazilian portuguese tv series are really popular so i picked up some stuff from there were your parents good cook or your grandparents yes i am very lucky to come from a family of excellent cooks maybe in somewhat conventional way it's mostly the women in my family all of the women, you know, grannies, great grannies, like exceptional cooks. So, yes. Who was doing more of the cooking at home growing up? So who was? Was your mom mostly? Um, yeah, my mom for sure. But also because um, at various points in my life, um, we had either my grandparents living with us or rather we were living with them. And then my great grandmother also lived with us while my mom was still studying and working. So for a lot of my younger life, actually, my great grandmother cooked for me um, and she cooked kind of for the whole family. And then later, um, obviously, it was my mom. Yeah. And she is a fantastic cook and an amazing party host as well, which <laughs> inspired me in many ways. Is there anything that you haven't quite mastered yet that they used to make? Yeah. I mean, my great grandmother, she actually worked as a chef. I always say, you know, chef, it's such a fancy word. So, I mean, she worked in canteens and stuff, but, you know, she cooked for a living. And she also worked as a pastry chef, like, you know, baking stuff. So she made the most amazing buns and babkas, that kind of stuff, kind of Jewish breads and things. Um, and there's no way I can replicate that. <laughs> Quite bad at baking, to be honest. That's the one sphere of cooking that I'm annoyed with myself about that I just can't really get it right why is that I don't know I get really anxious it's funny how so many people say that baking and working with pastry is so therapeutic it's not, it's <laughs> to not, me it's, it's not. the opposite yeah <laughs> I get do you, do you really think I'm going to fold something for 20 minutes now yeah I mean I just I don't have the patience I get a bit anxious when it's you know you have to be precise with the measurements so I'm more of an intuitive cook I love 
tasting and adjusting and you know kind of being more experimental I guess but baking is not unless you know unless you're at a certain level and you can start experimenting but how important is food to Russians and to their national identity oh that's a brilliant question thank you I only um, have one good one for podcasts so that's the one <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy. So you better answer very well Halisa. So that's the only thing I have <laughs> hugely uh, would be a short answer I think, I mean, food is such an amazing phenomenon, isn't it? But, and for most cultures, for most countries and nationalities and ethnic groups, it's such a big part of their identity and the way it's used and the way it naturally plays a part in, you know, constructing memories, constructing a certain idea of what a certain country is about. So, you know, besides the more kind of broader political, cultural use of food i think just on a personal level especially in cold places in russia like siberia where i come from you know food is such a big part of just kind of day-to-day -day rituals and what people bond over again growing up in the soviet days perhaps there's an extra kind of level of complications added to that um you know the whole experience of buying food and cooking and stuff that made it in a way kind of even more sacred that, you know, sparsity and lack of food always cultivates uh, reverence to food and um, the preservation of food and the growing of food in the summer. Yeah. So, you know, in a way, I mean, of course it's been, I mean, personally, I don't remember any particularly difficult years of food shortages, but my grandparents for sure lived through some really difficult times. And that's of course very horrendous in many ways but at the same time there's a real respect for food that that cultivates and I think the idea of hospitality and you know Russians despite what people might think in the west um, Russians are extremely hospitable and they love a good dinner party perhaps you know you do need to get to know them a little bit better before they'll open their house to you but once they do it's wonderful it's very warm and you know, very generous, even if there's not much, people still kind of take everything out. And there's like an expression in Russian that they'll cut, cut their last cucumber for you. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's very warm and very open, but has a lot of obviously complications to it as well. You mentioned the Soviet area. And actually, my next question was going to be that you study actually film history focusing on Soviet Holocaust cinema coming yes. from Russia. And with everything was going on at the time, how did that influence you growing up? Or for instance, do you remember stories from your grandparents? Because mm -hmm. I had here Olia Hercules on a podcast and she, mm -hmm. and it was very similar, right? And like you just mentioned, the food was sometimes was difficult to get. There was a lot of stories behind that. So how was coming from Russia growing up and how that influenced you? Or if you remember any stories, if it wasn't for you, your grandparents used to tell. Yeah. Yeah, history is such a fascinating subject and I love it. And partly, I guess partly why I love it so much is that my family just has so many different fascinating stories. And um, in the way, like my great grandmother, who was still around um, when I was little, um, you know, she was born in 1912. So she's lived and she died in like early 2000s. So she's lived for almost 100 years through the most fascinating century you know, surviving the Russian Revolution, two wars, the Holocaust, because she was Jewish, you know, and witnessing the collapse of the Soviet Union. So 
I think it's her experience that really fascinated me and her stories that she told me. So yeah, she she was such a fascinating person and I'm hoping maybe one day to write a book, not not a culinary book, but a kind of narrative book about her life because she had yeah. the most fascinating experience. So I think her stories have really kind of enriched my understanding of history and of Russian history specifically. I mean, I think every generation in my family has a fascinating story to tell you know my my grandparents were born in the 30s and then my mom was born my parents were born in the 60s so you know each generation had lived through a very fascinating time in the soviet history and you know i caught i was born in the 80s so i caught just the end of it lots of really fascinating experience and stories there created a kino vuno i'm not sure if i'm saying that right a supper club Can you yeah. explain what that is? Because I, I mentioned that. And what was the idea behind? So um, it's called Kino Vino. And um, I've always wanted, well, I mean, I've always loved cooking. and But I never thought about a professional life and food. But I always wanted to do something a little bit more creative than being a film scholar. As much as I love film and film history and cultural history in general, It was just, to be honest, a little bit boring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it didn't really, yeah, it just didn't feel like me. And it was at the time when I was finishing my PhD, which was a particularly difficult experience, that I, I mean, at least in my personal kind of surroundings, I became more aware of supper clubs as a phenomenon that was generally starting to happen in London. And obviously there's so many different things that you can do with a supper club and you kind of have to define what makes your offering different. So I thought, well, maybe I could tap into my experience and knowledge of film because I also worked for a while, worked as a film festival coordinator and curator. So I had an experience of how to put on a film screening and how to market that and all of that. But I never had any experience of cooking for a pay paying customer. So I thought, use my knowledge of film and film festivals, but invite a guest chef to you know add their professional expertise to the event and together we would create a menu that would be inspired by film so thematically or a theme within the film so yeah it's been a really fun process curating different themes and genres and finding a chef who would match the film with their menu did you ever envision or do you ever envision to open a restaurant focus on the type of food you grew up with Or the Kino Vino kind of, you can do a little bit of that. So yeah, I've done I've done some pop-ups as well as Kino Vino. I've done separate pop-ups without film screenings, focusing on Russian food. And that's kind of how my cookbook came about. I just started experimenting after a few years of hosting Kino Vino and working, you know, assisting in the kitchen. I build up a bit more confidence that I can actually charge people for my food and can deliver a decent standard of service and meals. I started testing out Russian recipes and that's kind of how the book became a reality for me. Yeah, I was going to ask what was the inspiration to write uh, Salt in Time that came out in 2019, but I guess that was it. I think my main starting point was, well, <laughs> it's a interesting to pinpoint what was the starting point but on the one hand you know the kind of general cultural political climate between Russia and the West is just so problematic and you know maybe I'm generalizing but you know it's safe to say it's a very negative view of Russia in the West 
Um, I'm not going to get into details and, you know, what this I mean. This is just a food podcast. Yeah, I get it. So yeah. <laughs> we only so talk felt, about carrots here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> so I felt a little bit annoyed that like, mm, yeah, I mean, there are problems in Russia, but it's such a cool country. And like, there's so much interesting stuff in terms of culture and food. And I kind of wanted to make Russia relevant and relatable through food. And my connection to that was also just as a coincidence um, when I was working in various cafes and obviously like really immersed in the whole food scene in London, uh, the trend of fermentation really picked up and uh, suddenly everyone was fermenting and, you know, names like or terms like kombucha and sauerkraut entered the popular vocabulary. So I was like, okay, well, I mean, I grew up with that stuff and, you know, fermentation in Russian culture is like one of the most kind of intrinsic ways of cooking. And it's such a big part of Russian culinary culture that dates back to probably before even the Middle Ages. Um, so I thought, well, maybe I could make Russia trendy again by actually using one of the most old you know, techniques and presenting some recipes that might be suddenly look exciting to people because it has fermentation in the name, you know, in the title of the supper club. So I kind of played around with different names. Um, and that's how Salt and Time came about, because I love the whole idea that, you know, when you ferment, you essentially cook with nothing but salt. And then time does its magic, transform properties of the food and flavors and everything. And yeah, and that's how how the book started. If you could describe very shortly, like in a vacuum, what's Russian food? There's the, a lot of, as a lot of countries have, it's very distinct, you know, the north to the south. But how could you describe in a general idea what's Russian food? Oh, it's such a, I mean, I've been thinking about it and talking about it for years now, and I still don't have a very concise answer. It's such a huge country and with such a, complex history and i guess that's what fascinates me about russian food is that complexity and diversity and there's so much more mixed into it than you actually think i mean on a very basic level and again that's kind of tapping into the stereotypes there's definitely a lot of uh, root vegetables sauerkraut so there's kind of tangy quality of you know soured food is definitely, I would say, one of the most distinctive elements of Russian cuisine. Lots of dill, lots of potatoes, lots of cabbage. So, you know, these are kind of the cliches, but, you know, they're wonderful cliches. All of those ingredients are delicious and I absolutely love uh, cooking with all of them. But I guess perhaps the lesser known elements would be the whole super complex and super fascinating history of Soviet food you know, that whole phenomenon of the 70 years of the Soviet regime and how they, you know, handpicked old recipes and revamped them for mass production and how they implemented them across, the, you know, a huge continent and very successfully. Um, so that's also has, you know, the Soviet cuisine, to what extent is it Russian? That's a great question. That can be a whole separate book. <laughs> yeah. But also where I come from, um, in Siberia, and obviously Siberia itself is huge, so I'm from central Siberia, um, very close to Kazakhstan, so close to Central Asia, and there are lots of influences from that part of the world. And then my dad comes from the Far East, which is literally on the border with China, so actually, you know, that part of Russia is very 
Asian and it's cooking. So it's, yeah, such a fascinating diversity. I mentioned in your introduction that you're a big advocate for maternal well-being. Mm -hmm. How food relates to mental health for a mother and by extension to the whole family? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like of paramount importance and something that I haven't really understood until I got the embodied experience of that. And I think perhaps I kind of shot myself in the foot being so confident that I'm, you know, I'm a I cook professionally. I've cooked for like hundreds of people. I mean, surely I'll be fine when I have a baby. And actually I found myself completely lost and disorientated in my own kitchen, not knowing what to eat. So that really inspired me to focus more, you know, slightly shift my professional path in food and focus more on maternal, physical and emotional mental well-being through food and uh, through the podcast and I'm also launching a series of cooking classes um, hopefully a cookbook as well in the future um, because it's I mean you know that's where we all begin <laughs> mm -hmm. in a woman's body and how that woman nourishes herself when she's pregnant but also you know that intense connection doesn't end when you give birth it's if anything it intensifies for the first couple of years because the baby is so dependent on you And if you are breastfeeding, you are literally food for your baby. So what you eat and how you feel emotionally and mentally is, you know, directly influences the milk quality and your relationship to the baby. And of course, to the whole family. And it's, you know, it's amazing how we often forget that is the mother who really is the foundation of the whole family in terms of kind of, again, emotional and practical ways. And if the mother is not feeling well, then the whole thing falls apart. So, you know, once the woman becomes a mother, she's somehow pushed aside and the baby becomes the focus, whereas it really should still be the mother. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any kids and it might, might be naive for me, but I always imagine, focus a lot on food if I ever have a kid. For instance, mm. I always thought I'm going to make, oh, of course, I'm going to make all my foods. Like you just said, you know, being a chef, I'm going to make all the baby food. And one of something super important for me, I always thought will be like every single meal. We have to all have the meal at the table. Mm -hmm. uh, is this like something that you thought about it, wanted before you had mm -hmm. kids, this idea? And why do you think it doesn't translate when you actually have the kids? Mm, it's a great question. Well, I think on a we broader... got two now. <laughs> yeah. we got two. Yes. <laughs> on a broader sense, you know, your own idea will never be the same as reality because what you have in your mind actually is, you know, unreliable to say the least. Um, but um, specifically to the family experience, I mean, I think to me at least, the biggest surprise was that you know I'm dealing with a independent human being and it's that psychological transition from that baby being part of my body suddenly becoming an independent little human um and you know the older they get the more independent they get my daughter now is two and a half and that's like the peak of her you know experimenting with the boundaries of her own independence yeah um you know so what you have in your mind and how your child will respond to it are two completely different stories and i think the sooner if I realized it sooner, it probably would have been less surprised and less felt less let down by my own 
you know, expectations. I share completely what you've said. I also, and to an extent, I think it worked well. You know, the idea of having a meal together as a family is super important to me. I mean, just, first of all, because it's fun. <laughs> it really is the most natural and fun way to eat. But also having done some research into kind of the science of baby food and, you know, how that affects your relationship to food as an adult. Most sources say that eating together as a family is key. So, you know, don't feed your baby separately to a different table, you know, don't feel them excluded and never treat them like they have different needs. You know, how there's this whole notion of baby food or like kids menus and stuff. It's just such, such a con. So just treat, you know, obviously you do understand that they have slightly different nutritional needs and completely, but on a broader sense, you know, treat them as an equal at the table and they'll have a much healthier relationship to food. So that to me was before she was born, that was very important. And I'm glad that we managed to have that relationship. So in that sense, kind of my ideal image of us eating together definitely works and and it actually kind of disciplined me and my partner a little bit more because before I would often have dinner while watching Netflix or something. Yeah. <laughs> but now we actually always, we sit down, we play some music and yeah, the, the meals become a ritual now. So it's wonderful. Do you think it's with technology and there's a lot of different services nowadays that people can have delivered to your house, at least in the U.S.? you know, baby food and they monitor, mm -hmm. monitor kind of like weekly and mm -hmm. what's the age of the baby and all of that. Do you mm -hmm. think on one hand, it's all of this helps, but on the other hand, it loses the essence a little bit. What is to have all those steps as a, as parents? Mm. Yeah. I mean, baby food is tricky to be honest. I was, that was my kind of down, what do you call it? Downfall. Maybe that's a bit too dramatic of a word, but we can be <laughs> dramatic. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. I also thought I'd always cook myself for the, my baby and actually it's not always that easy and it's particularly that tricky age from when they start weaning from four or six months until they have a better kind of you know motor skills and coordination to be able to eat themselves at like one or so so these like four or five months I found them extremely tricky because you have to cook you know it's a very weird amount of food that you need to cook to puree something properly you need to have a bigger chunk you can't just puree half a carrot but then you have all this kind of headache of storing it and then freezing it and you know it's just honestly it did not work for me at all <laughs> and there's this whole big you know field of baby led weaning or purees and i kind of ended up doing a bit of both but actually i ended up using I never use the kind of takeaway home-cooked baby food service that you've mentioned. And I think there are a few really lovely here in London as well. Um, but I found a baby food brand that I personally, you know, I did the research. I like the ethos. They're, you know, it's a family brand started by a chef. It tastes good. <laughs> so I was like, you know what? I would eat it. Um, I'm convinced by their ethics. I'm convinced by their sourcing fine like it makes my life easier it exposes my child to some really interesting flavors um she loved it so i was i kind of i felt a bit guilty at first but then i was like you know what <laughs> it's yeah. just not helpful at all uh to guilt trip myself there's enough of that in our society yeah. Anyway. so yeah 
definitely do whatever yeah. works best but i would say you know do a bit of research and don't just go for the first available thing okay so shifting the conversation a little bit imagine an island Alyssa. do you have an island that you really like <laughs> just love the name of it i actually have never been there but um it's an island in sweden where in ingmar bergman lived the great swedish director yeah. okay so that what island I can't, I can't remember yeah but anyway. people will google it's fine so yeah. you can take one protein one veggie one fruit and one dessert what do you take oh god <laughs> one protein i'd say chicken veg oh i love beetroot it doesn't really go with chicken at that all doesn't matter. the logistics <laughs> and how you do the thing the menus don't worry about that the fruits fruit not a huge fruit person, I have to say, but but I guess I just go for a good old apple. Good old, okay. And dessert? Mm, not a big dessert person either. <laughs> At least actually she doesn't eat for everybody listening to. She only, she only drinks coffee. That's it. <laughs> um, brownie, probably. Chocolate brownie. So, okay. So next time, if you ever go to that island, just think about that. So, okay. All those four ingredients. What was your first memory of taste? Hmm. It's definitely a trip that we took as a family to Sochi, this southern Russia uh, resort. And I think it's a mixture of there was this place where they did like a honey drink. I think it was literally just honey diluted in water and that kind of sweetness that I really enjoyed. But also having um, like digestive biscuits with butter. Okay. Again, I was at the same trip, so it's, I was around three. So I guess that was, I would say, this kind of the age and the time when I started to remember myself and the food memories as well. The most underrated ingredient for you? Cabbage, for sure. Overrated? Okra? Okay. There are lots of people who like, yeah, I can't stand it. And I really <laughs> <laughs> the best breakfast you can have. Oh, well, something that I haven't had for a long time, but it's um, hangover breakfast, <laughs> the one that brings you back to life, you know, when you've had a crazy night before and then you're dead in the morning and then you have like a proper big English breakfast. Oh, and then you're like a human again and you can see straight, I think. So don't forget tonight, just gets really trashed, as they say. And then tomorrow, <laughs> just have a big breakfast. Uh, I don't think my daughter will agree with that plan. <laughs> Strangest combination food-wise when people put two or three ingredients together that you just cannot accept? I think seafood and cheese. Italians like, don't like that as well. Yeah, yeah, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Okay. So the name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. Those are actually two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? <laughs> probably breaking more dishes okay. <laughs> for myself at, at least yeah at the end of the podcast also i tell my guests to sell their fish this is other portuguese phrase so if someone tells you to sell your fish actually means to talk about yourself in this case what's in the future for you where people can find you so just sell your fish Alyssa. <laughs> so my fish um is um my cookbook salt and time it's a really stunning cookbook. And I'm only saying that because I, it's a praise uh, to the team of uh, stylists and photographer who worked on it. So as well as amazing recipes, but it's a really 
lovely aesthetic experience uh, paging through that book. You can find it on Amazon and I guess Amazon probably is the best one and there's a US version as well. Um, and then you can find me on Instagram under Alyssa Timoshkina and my website is also alyssatimoshkina.com. Now I feel bad because I did not pronounce your last name well. But it's oh, that's okay. fine. Okay. Uh, Alyssa, thank you very much. Oh, it's a pleasure. I know it was busy. I, this is busy times for you. If I ever go to London, I'll give you a call. That'll and be don't forget, when you go to that Swedish island, just take that chicken, that beetroot, that apple, and that brownie. Okay? <laughs> Sounds like an awful combination. It's, don't worry about I'll Don't do worry it. about that. <laughs> uh, how do you say, see you soon in Russian? So that's a good way to finish. The Skorova. That's exactly what I was thinking. Thank you very much, Alyssa. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Alyssa, for coming on the podcast. Don't forget, go buy her book on Amazon or any place you can find her book, Salt and Time. Also, don't forget to follow the Instagram page of the podcast, Turning Chickens, Breaking Dishes, or the Facebook page, Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. Also, don't forget, if you want to support this podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash dmartins. And again, no, you're not buying me a latte, okay? It's a good way to improve the podcast. If you want to send me an email, you can do so to info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. I'll be back next week. Be happy, be safe. Adios.